Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Naomi. I support this program, and I hope you do, too. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. President Obama's picks to head the Energy Department and the EPA face senators on Capitol Hill, and the EPA itself is in the hot seat. The EPA is making it impossible for our coal miners to feed their families. You know, how many more times, if confirmed, will this EPA director pull the regulatory lever and allow another mining family to fall through the EPA's trapdoor to joblessness, to poverty, and to poor health? We assess the prospects of the nominees. Also, how to build robots to operate in our world. If a robot needs to live with us in an environment designed for humans, then I claim that the robot needs to have the size and shape of a human. So if the robot is not a humanoid form, it won't be able to navigate the environment designed for humans. We'll have that story and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Four months into his second term, President Obama is still building his green team. Sally Jewell has finally been confirmed as Secretary of the Interior. But the president's picks to run the Environmental Protection Agency and the Energy Department are waiting for Senate approval. Secretary of Energy-designate Ernest Moniz was President Clinton's undersecretary of energy, and the experience showed at his confirmation hearings on April 9th. The president has advocated in all of the above uh, energy strategy, and if confirmed as secretary, I will pursue this with the highest priority. As the president said when he announced my nomination, quote, we can produce more energy and grow our economy while still taking care of our air, water, and climate. The need to mitigate climate change risks is emphatically supported by the science and by the engaged scientific community. DOE should continue to support a robust R&D portfolio of low-carbon options and to advance a 21st century electricity delivery system. And when the MIT professor was asked to introduce his family to the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, Moniz had some numbers. Okay, I'll start with my wife of 39.83 years, Naomi. (laughs) Minnesota Democrat Al Franken challenged the professor's arithmetic. Dr. Moniz, thank you for being with us. Uh, You said that you've been married 39.83 years. Uh, May I remind you, you're under oath. Is (laughs) Is your anniversary June 10th? June 9th. That's in the rounding area. Rounding error. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have to consider. It was a light moment in a session that mostly dealt with dark matters. Professor Moniz is a nuclear physicist, and Nevada Republican Dean Heller grilled him about the stalled Yucca Mountain nuclear waste depot. Yucca Mountain was plagued with problems, including falsified science and design problems. Given this, it's no wonder that Nevadans don't trust the assertions that Yucca Mountain is safe. The people in Nevada deserve to be safe in their own backyards. And no amount of reassurance from the federal government will convince us that Nevada should be the nation's nuclear waste dump. The chairman, Democrat Ron Wyden of Oregon, complained about the Cold War-era atomic weapons plant in Hanford, Washington, where radioactive waste has been leaking. As Congress works to address nuclear waste, it's important that the department take responsibility for the legacy of contaminated waste sites like Hanford. 
It's flatly unacceptable that the department still has no viable plan for cleaning up hazardous waste on the bank of the Columbia River half a century after the contamination occurred and more than a decade since Dr. Meniz served as Undersecretary of Energy. The senator wanted reassurance that if confirmed, Ernest Moniz would act. The professor replied that were he confirmed, he would. By and large, he had a warm reception, and his nomination is expected to sail through. A couple of days later, EPA nominee Gina McCarthy faced the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. I'm deeply honored that President Obama has nominated me to lead the EPA. Having spent my career in public service, I know of no higher privilege than working with my colleagues at EPA, with Congress, and our public and private partners to ensure that American families can breathe clean air, drink clean water, and live, learn, and play in safer, healthier communities. The committee gave the nominee a cordial reception, but there was plenty of criticism of the agency she's been tapped ahead. Some Republican senators question the reality of climate science and complain that EPA regulations are destroying industries and costing jobs. Here's John Barrasso of Wyoming. I'm not sure whether the nominee before us today is personally aware of so many folks who have actually lost their jobs because of the EPA uh, and a role that I believe it is taking now, which is failing our country. The EPA is making it impossible for our coal miners to feed their families. You know, how many more times, if confirmed, will this EPA director pull the regulatory lever and allow another mining family to fall through the EPA's trap door uh, to joblessness, to poverty, and to poor health? Regulations and proposed rules on greenhouse gases, coal ash, mercury emissions, and industrial boilers have led to the closing of dozens of power plants in the U.S., costing our country thousands of jobs. But independent Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont was having none of that argument. Really, this is not a debate about Gina McCarthy. Uh, Senator Barrasso made it very clear what the debate is about. And it is a debate about global warming. And whether or not we are going to listen to the leading scientists of this country who are telling us that global warming is the most serious planetary crisis that we and the global community face and whether we are going to address that crisis in a serious manner. And in essence, what Senator Barrasso has just said is, no, he does not want the EPA to do that. He does not want the EPA to listen to science. What he wants is us to continue doing as little as possible as we see extreme weather disturbances, drought, floods, and heat waves all over the world take place. So let me go on record as saying I want the EPA to be vigorous in protecting our children and future generations from the horrendous crisis that we face from global warming. Bernie Sanders of Vermont. Still, despite the heated rhetoric, even GOP members said they are looking forward to working with Gina McCarthy. And she, too, is expected to win confirmation. Well, assuming Gina McCarthy is confirmed, she'll head up the agency perhaps most responsible for delivering on President Obama's promises to address climate change and rein in carbon emissions. But the next EPA head could face a surprising and continuing obstacle inside the Obama administration itself at the Office of Management and Budget. 
Lisa Heinzerling, a former EPA official who is now a law professor at Georgetown University, has written about OMB's sometimes obstructive role in environmental rulemaking. She joins us now from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me. First off, please explain to me what is the Office of Management and Budget and how does it impact the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to promulgate regulations? The Office of Management and Budget is an office within the White House famous mostly, as the name implies, for managing budgetary issues. But it also has within it a little office called the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. People who know this office know it by its acronym OIRA. And for quite a few years now, that office, OIRA, has reviewed all of the major regulations that come out of administrative agencies and has had the authority to disapprove of rules that come out of administrative agencies. Most people don't know this, um, but it's a very powerful office. I gather this process got going during the Reagan administration under the tutelage of David Stockman. To what extent has this been an attempt to consolidate control in the office of the president? Well, I think to a large extent it has. I think one of the striking things that people have noticed about this dynamic is that Most presidents, regardless of party, have seemed to clamp down tighter and tighter on the administrative agencies and to centralize power more and more within the White House itself. So what's the criteria that uh, OMBI uses when it judges uh, EPA rules? Well, it's a little bit hard to tell. The first thing I would say is that, at least in this administration, many rules have gone to this office for review and have never come back. They are stuck there for years and years, and um, there's no explanation about why that is. And so it's a little bit hard to evaluate the criteria by which they're being judged or even to describe those criteria when we don't know why the rules are stuck. The second point is that OMB tends to look at rules through the lens of cost-benefit analysis. That's what its uh, governing executive orders provide, and that's been its bent over the years. So to some extent, at least, um, we can speculate that some of the rules are stuck because they don't pass OMB's cost-benefit analysis. Wait a second, Professor. As I understand the law for a number of EPA regulations, such as stuff under the Clean Air Act, cost-benefit analysis isn't allowed. Uh, Do I have that right? You do have that right, and that's why the process is so puzzling and, and even troubling. Some of the most important provisions of the Clean Air Act actually don't allow cost-benefit analysis. The Supreme Court held unanimously in an opinion by Justice Scalia, no less, that EPA could not consider cost-benefit analysis in setting those standards. And yet, kind of strikingly, the one rule that President Obama has returned to an agency in this administration with a public explanation was a rule set under that provision of the Clean Air Act. That was the standard for ozone. Ozone pollution? You're talking about smog, right? Yes. And so the troubling message that this sends is the possibility that cost-benefit is being used to evaluate rules even where it's legally forbidden. What did the president say in his message of transmittal saying that he was sending the ozone rule back to EPA? Did he mention cost-benefit? That's so interesting. He actually said um, he cited regulatory burdens and regulatory uncertainty and the economic conditions in the country. 
sound an awful lot like the consideration of costs, to me at least. Ordinarily, one would want to think that uh, one should look at the cost of a regulation. Explain why cost-benefit analysis uh, would be a problem in such a case. Yeah, I think it's tricky to figure out exactly what the benefits of environmental regulation are. It's hard to quantify them. It's hard to figure out how many people might die or fall ill or go to the hospital or miss work or school um, if pollution um, stays at, at current levels. And then it becomes even trickier to figure out how much those things are worth in dollar terms. These are questions that have, you know, kind of dogged economists for many, many years. And I'm, I'm not sure we have good answers, answers to them yet. And the worry is that cost-benefit analysis will skew the process against environmental rules. It'll almost never tell us to do a rule that we otherwise wouldn't want to do. But it'll often come in and say, or um, suggest that uh, we shouldn't engage in rules that probably seem like pretty good ideas. Rules on water pollution, for example, tend to fare very poorly in cost-benefit analysis. Well, let me just say again, though, the, the, one of the predominant points I think worth noting about this process right now is that we just don't know why rules are getting stuck in the White House. It could be cost-benefit analysis, or it could be uh, something else entirely. We just don't know. What specific issues do you think will this impact the remainder of President Obama's uh, term? It will, uh, I believe, absolutely affect rules on climate change. It'll affect uh, rules on energy efficiency, even at the Department of Energy. It'll affect large air pollution rules like air quality standards for pollutants. It will affect large rules on water pollution, rules on toxic chemicals, Insofar as the agency is issuing rules, and rules that the White House deems major, it affects everything the agency does. There's much controversy over the CO2 rules. What you're saying makes me wonder if one should be concerned that the White House again will intervene in what the EPA is trying to do in putting forth rules uh, about the amount of uh, greenhouse gases that can come from power plants and other places. Well, I think that given the way the administration has handled regulatory policy so far, there's no question but that any rules on greenhouse gases from the EPA will go to the White House for review. And uh, in that process, they may well be either substantially changed or could be rejected altogether. And this will be in public view? Not necessarily. I would hope that something so important would be more transparent than some of the other processes I've described, but I can't say that it will be, given the track record. I think in an administration that has so committed to transparency and I think really intends transparency in many domains, I think it's striking that in the domain of regulatory policy, they've had such closely held secrets. Lisa Heinzerling is a professor of law at Georgetown University. Thank you so much for taking the time with me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, scientists say it won't be too long till if you need a new organ, they can simply print one. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. 
Just ahead, tides ebb and flow like clockwork twice a day, but that doesn't ensure smooth sailing for tidal power. First, here's this note on emerging science from Naomi Ehrenberg. A breakthrough in printer technology could make it possible for scientists to manufacture human organs in the laboratory. These bioprinters rely on mechanisms that resemble the old dot matrix system, except that, instead of spraying dots of traditional ink, they spray bioink. That's a solution of living cells and a thick, liquid biomaterial that helps the cells grow into living tissue once printed onto a surface. A container of this bioink is fastened to the end of a printer arm, which scans back and forth to print a row of dots on each pass. The bioprinter is not a new idea, but now a new design by University of Iowa engineers enables specific tissue cells to be printed alongside blood vessel cells so fast, it's almost simultaneous. This means that those tissue-specific cells can grow and develop with their own blood vessels, ensuring a flow of nutrients to the fragile young tissue and hastening its development. What makes this possible is a double-arm printer. Until now, printers had only one arm, which laid down only a single line of bioink. The research team hopes to print human organs for transplant within five to 10 years. One of the first of these could be a pancreatic organ that could be implanted anywhere in the body to regulate glucose level. Now that people are living longer, the demand for replacement organs is far outpacing supply. Perhaps the laboratory will be able to help fill the gap. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Naomi Arenberg. In honor of Earth Month, which we celebrate for the whole of April, we're bringing you updates of some of our favorite stories. Back in July of 2011, we looked at harnessing the power of ocean tides to generate electricity. Jeff Young went to Maine to bring us this report. The barge-like craft moored to a dock in Portland, Maine, looks like some modern version of a sternwheel paddleboat. Hydraulic arms hold a massive cylinder of blades ready to go in the water. But this boat isn't built for speed. It's built for power, tidal power. It's the creation of Chris Sauer and his Ocean Renewable Power Company. This is our baby. This is uh, the Energy Tide 2. This is the largest ocean energy device ever deployed in U.S. waters. Let's have a look. Come aboard. The Energy Tide 2 is normally anchored near Eastport in an arm of the Bay of Fundy called Cobbscook Bay. Sauer towed it to Portland for a national convention on ocean energy. He shows me to the boat's business end, the high-tech composite blades curved inside a turbine generator unit, or TGU. When it's fully deployed, it's directly under this axle right here. Mm-hmm. And it's about 15 feet from the water, top of the water, to the top of the TGU. And then it's locked into position. And it just sits there. And as the tidal currents come, it starts to generate electricity. And then, of course, the tide reverses and comes the other way and does the same thing. On an average basis, we're generating about 18 to 20 hours a day. A small cabin crowded with electronics and monitors converts the power and keeps track of what's happening underwater. The unit can generate 60 kilowatts of power, and that's been going to a Coast Guard station, the country's first federal facility to use tidal power. But primarily, this is a research project. 
Sauer says in a year of operation, it's shown virtually no impact to fish or other marine life. And it's proved that the tides can predictably generate power that could be plugged into the grid. Now, Sauer wants to scale up. The next step is our uh, turbine generator unit uh, is going to be uh, get a little bigger. Uh, instead of two turbines, it's going to have four turbines. It's going to be about twice as long, but it's going to put out three times the power. So instead of a design capacity of 60 kilowatts, it will be 180 kilowatts. And uh, we hope to get that in the water and connected to the grid by the end of the year. That's our plan. Sauer says the project has also proved tidal power can generate jobs. The companies provided jobs for 100 people in Maine, people like Daryl Speed, who had been laid off. Honestly, I was at the, the stage was I was going to have to look to go outside of Maine. I mean, I was born and raised here, want to stay here, but, uh, you know, it was coming down to that. That's when Speed saw an ad for ocean renewable power. He had no idea what it was about. Well, quite frankly, I, don't, I didn't care at the time I needed a job. Like I said before, I wanted to stay in Maine. And, but since I've gotten here, this company is, you know, it is a company about creating jobs, but it's also a company about creating a sustainable energy uh, resource for the United States. Uh, and it's renewable. The tides go and ebb and flood every day. You can set your watch by it. No, will we be 100% will we be able to replace all of our energy resources? No, but we're part of the answer, a big part of the answer. Well, it's a couple of years later, and that's about when the company hoped it would be feeding tide-generated power to the grid. So we contacted Chris Sauer, the president of Ocean Renewable Power Company, again to find out if he made his deadline of getting plugged in by the end of 2011. Uh, Well, uh, we uh, didn't quite make that schedule, but we did get it connected to the grid. In fact, September 5th of 2012, we uh, delivered the first power into the grid from any kind of ocean energy project, whether offshore wind, uh, wave, or tidal, anywhere in the Americas other than a a project in Nova Scotia that involved a dam. So the tidal cycle is about 24 hours. How much of that period of time are you able to generate power? We're actually generating, uh, on an average basis, maybe 16 to 18 of the uh, hours in a day. Now, I understand that you've got plans to expand and put more tidal generators in the Bay of Fundy in Maine. Tell me about that, please. We uh, were able to negotiate a long-term 20-year power purchase agreement, which means we secured the market at an attractive price for our power to build out the project in uh, down east Maine, eventually up to uh, 5 megawatts, which we, uh, we intend to do over the next uh, four or five years. How many units will you have? Well, that'll be uh, roughly uh, 18 to 20 additional turbine generator units, we call them, TGUs. Now, of course, the tides are one source. What about uh, tidal rivers? Well, rivers, uh, any kind of moving water. We have a, uh, what's called RivGen power system, which is a much smaller version, and it's really designed to be installed in remote communities that have what they call microgrids typically powered by diesel generators, and uh, this is a system that we essentially can tow up river. It deploys itself. We simply ballast it. Uh, Our first project is going in uh, a year from this summer in a little village in Alaska called Igiagig, so that's very exciting. And for folks who are wondering what's novel, of course, no dam required. No dam required and nothing visible from the surface. Everything is below the water, so we like to tell people the view before we uh, install the project is exactly the same view you see after. Chris, back uh, in 2011, you were concerned about federal funding for tidal energy projects. How's that going, and and what's going on in terms of federal backing for your research and installation? 
First of all, the, the project that we have installed now could not have been done without significant involvement with the U.S. Department of Energy. Uh, we were able to uh, secure on a competitive basis a $10 million uh, grant for this project, which has uh, really allowed us then to raise the private capital. But in general, the mood in uh, Washington, D.C. is to defund uh, R&D, particularly for new things like Tidal or Wave. And, and so we've been battling that, the amount of money that is made available for, for instance, DOE to bid out on a competitive basis is really a pittance. It's a few million bucks compared to the money made available for other things like nuclear or, quote, clean coal. It's really minuscule. When do you get to break even on this? Assuming the growth scenario where we're able to attract capital, we as a company will be, uh, I think, at a break-even point in about three years. In terms of cost of electricity, our projections are showing by 2020 or so, we are going to be competitive with virtually any new sources of power. If you look out into that time frame, it looks very good. The, the issue is how do we get from here to there? So give me the back of the envelope calculation as to what the potential for tidal power is in the United States. If we were to tap you know, the, the obvious and uh, sort of the easier places to do, how much of our power could we get from tidal energy? You know, there's estimates that say it could be ultimately 15 or 20 percent of the uh, total uh, demand for electricity in the United States. Let me guess, there are other countries around the world that are grabbing this technology and running with it. Do I have that right? You're right. In fact, our competition is really, for the most part, over in Europe. Uh, one of the things that's happened there was early on, there were significant government uh, involvement in terms of subsidies to get people going. And then uh, some of the European industrial companies, people like Siemens and ABB and others, have now invested in uh, those European companies that have projects in the water. Uh, although, uh, honestly, we've kind of caught up with them. But the problem is now they've gained uh, significant uh, capital and in uh, human resources. And this is not happening in the U.S. We're in a, uh, a David and Goliath dilemma here because we're going up against the big boys and we're not that big. <laughs> You know, I think uh, I've heard this story before. I think it's called wind energy. I mean, we develop the turbines, but the Germans make and sell them now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we started out in the 70s pioneering, and uh, and we kind of lost patience and interest. And next thing you know, uh, the wind industry comes back in the 90s, and it's most of it is being uh, built by uh, companies from uh, Europe. So I, I hope this doesn't happen, but it looks like that may be where this is uh, what's all headed, which is uh, unfortunate. Did you ever think when you were a boy playing at the seashore that you would be harnessing all those waves? Well, it's funny. I'm from Illinois, central Illinois, Peoria, Illinois. I didn't even see an ocean until I was in my 20s. So I didn't dream about that because I, I had a hard time conjuring up what the heck the seashore looked like. But the, the thing that was compelling at first was, you know, almost 70% of the world is covered in water. And what I didn't know at the time is 70% of the electricity in the world is within 200 miles of an ocean. And so if you can somehow put those two things together, uh, excuse the bad pun, but it'll be a sea change in how electricity is generated and distributed. Perhaps it'll play in Peoria. It will play in Peoria. Chris Sauer is president of the Ocean Renewable Power Company. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Evolution is a wonderful thing, creating the most weirdly beautiful, ingenious, and unlikely creatures. In the beautiful camp, there are, of course, many, many birds. 
but don't look for showy feathers or glorious colors to distinguish the subject of today's bird note. Here's Michael Stein to explain. When a Carolina wren tips back its head and sings, something remarkable happens. A Carolina wren can sing so loudly that you almost have to shout to be heard over its song. Wrens aren't the only small birds with big voices, but they are the best known for this ability. How can a bird like a Carolina wren, all of five and a half inches long and weighing only as much as four nickels, produce so much sound? The answer lies in the songbird's vocal anatomy. Unlike you and I, who creates sound from the larynx way up at the top of our windpipe, a bird's song comes from deep within its body. Birds produce song in a structure called the syrinx, located at the bottom of the windpipe, where the bronchial tubes diverge to the lungs. The syrinx is surrounded by an air sac, and the combination works like a resonating chamber to maintain or amplify sound. Evolution has given birds a far more elaborate sound mechanism than it's given humans. Where we wound up with a flute, songbirds got bagpipes. I'm Michael Stein. To see some photos of those shrill Carolina wrens singing their hearts out, flit on over to our website, LOE.org. Your comments on our program are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or write to Post Office Box 99007, Boston, Massachusetts, 02199. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. And you can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download of the audio to listen when you want at LOE.org. Coming up, a secret of the trees is revealed in some down-to-earth research to understand global warming. Stay tuned for more at Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If you hear the words carbon sequestration, you might well think of dense forests filled with mighty trees. But new research reported in Science Magazine suggests that tiny fungi in the soil may deserve a little more credit for fighting global warming. Ecologist Karina Clemenson of the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences in Uppsala joins us now via Skype to discuss her fungi research. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. So before your research, what was the thinking on the mechanism for carbon sequestration in forests? Yeah, so the way people think about it is that carbon enters the soil uh, through litter falls on the soil surface. So uh, like needles and leaves and branches fall to the soil surface and then 
after some decomposition, the remains of that stay behind and accumulate as, as uh, humus, as we call it in the forest soil. But your research suggests that the fungi in the soil play a much larger role. Can you explain that for us? A little bit simplified, there's two major groups of fungi in boreal forest soil. So that's the fungi working with the litters falling on the soil surface. That's free-living saprotrophic fungi. So they basically release carbon out of the organic material. And then there's the other group of fungi, which live in symbiosis with the tree roots. Uh, what are these fungi called? Mycorrhizal fungi. They sit on the tree roots and receive carbon directly from the tree, which fix carbon in the photosynthesis. And uh, they use that carbon to grow in the soil and produce biomass. And in return, as part of the symbiosis, they return nutrients and water to the tree. So they basically have the capacity to add carbon to the soil at depth. Aha, uh -huh. so the tree harvests the sunlight for the fungi, and the fungi does the processing to sequester the carbon. Mm -hmm. So what do these fungi look like? Yeah, it's many of the mushrooms that you know from the forest, like chanterelles and different other edible mushrooms that you see. But that's only the fruiting bodies that you see there, like the apple on the apple tree. The rest of the fungus is living like small threats in the soil. But if you look closely on the root tips of the tree, you can see that the tips are normally rounded and they can have different colors. And that's the fungus that form those structures. It can be completely black or some are uh, yellow. And then they have, you can see like hair structures extending from the root tip. How much carbon are they adding, do you think? So this is kind of the major finding here. So this mechanism of the mycorrhizal fungi to grow in the soil has been known for a long time, but here we're able to quantify how much carbon they actually add. More than 50%, 50 to 70% of the carbon that is currently stored in the soil is derived from the roots rather than from above ground litter. Tell me, in general, how important are boreal forests to carbon sequestration around the world? If you consider the, the boreal forest biome together with the Arctic biome, they um, actually contain like a third of the carbon stored in soils globally. If you, you consider the boreal forest only, then uh, it's 16% of the carbon stored in soil globally. Now, are the fungi working in the Arctic area as well? Yes, definitely. Um, we have the same major groups of fungi there, but there we have a transition towards more dominance of ericoid plants, like heather plants, and they associate with the so-called ericoid mycorrhizal fungi. And definitely we think that those fungi have an equally big role in carbon sequestration in those areas. So what needs to be done to keep fungi happy? In other words, how does your research shift how we should think about the way we should be managing forests? The study we present here is only done in natural forests. It's a long age gradient, you can say, with forests ranging from 100 years to over 5,000 years. So we have not addressed the question on uh, how to manage forests, really. But from this gradient, we can say that uh, if you leave a forest undisturbed for more than a thousand years, several thousand years, then it continues to uh, suck in carbon into the soil. Aha, uh -huh, because people have been saying, look, a tree, once it gets to be full mature size, it's not taking up any more carbon. It'd be better almost to cut it down and plant a new tree. But you're saying no. 
Yeah, so maybe the story for the soil is a bit different, right? So we have to consider these uh, processes in the soil more. And definitely when you cut down the tree, then the mycorrhizal fungi will die. And uh, then we'd leave this other major group of fungi, the, the free-living saprotrophs that I talked about living in, mo- normally only living in the in the litters, fresh litters in the soil surface. So they potentially could move down and start decomposing more of their stored carbon. A general thing to say here would be that, okay, um, clear-cutting um, in the forest management would probably not be good for the carbon sequestration. Karina, what do you hope comes out of your research? I hope that modelers uh, creating predictive models of uh, future carbon balances and so on would consider this different pathway and try to create response functions of the two different pathways, the litter and the root-derived carbon, because those two pathways might react differently to forest management and climate changes. So it's important to describe them as two different ways of carbon to enter the soil pool. Karina Clemensen is a researcher at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences in Uppsala, Sweden. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. Our humanoid friends and helpmates have just celebrated National Robotics Week with special events such as a robot zoo and a robot block party. Of course, we don't imagine the bots are drinking beer or wine. They may be the stuff of science fiction, but robots are now widely used in industry, and more and more they take on such dangerous tasks as defusing bombs or flying aircraft over hostile territory. To get some clues of how robots will interact with just plain folks, Lisa Raffensperger took a trip to Los Angeles. Her story comes to us from the IEEE Spectrum magazine, National Science Foundation special, Life in 2030. You smell the Los Angeles Korean Festival before you see it. Billows of smoke rising from enormous grills, skillets of dumplings, fried potato pancakes. This small park in central L.A. for one weekend a year turns into a fairground. Vendors sell food, Korean groceries, and makeup. And L.A.'s Korean population, the largest outside of Korea, turn out by the thousands. But in one corner of the hubbub is something quite different. I want a leg battery. I want to stick a leg battery in here so you can run for longer. Here, you want me to put it in? Sure, so there's a specific order. But you gotta go plug in, plug and then in, pull, face, then and then push down, and yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it. That's the most annoying motor to change. Two of Dennis Hong's post-grad students take turns working on a five-foot-tall robot, Charlie, who you'll meet properly a little later on. They're getting him ready for his big stage act later this afternoon. His white chest plate is removed, exposing his CPU, or central processing unit, the hardware you can think of as the brain of the robot. He has white arms and a smallish egg-shaped plastic head with a black faceplate. But apart from those, he looks like a contraption from an advanced erector set, all gears, motors, and metal beams. Charlie was America's first true, full-size humanoid when he was created back in 2010. Compared to bots like Honda's Asimo, Charlie's strength is that he's sort of the cheap and cheerful type. He weighs only about 30 pounds and is designed to be one of the cheapest humanoids out there. He's also, as it turns out, 
the world soccer champion among robots since 2011. Bryce Lee, PhD student in Hong's lab, explains. Um, it's got a couple of sensors. One is a, just a standard USB webcam that's in his head um, that it uses to look around, find the soccer ball in the field, find the lines in the field so it can figure out where it is um, and locate the goals. Um, and then it figures out how it wants to, to move in order to kick it to score. Um, it's also got an inertial measurement unit. It's kind of like your inner ear. It's a balance sensor uh, that it uses to figure out if it's you know, tilted forward a little bit um, so it'll compensate by you know, tilting itself backwards. Um, just to stay as balanced as possible during its walk. Um, but when it runs soccer mode, it's 100% of autonomous. It's actually, it's better at playing soccer autonomous than it is with us remote controlling it. Uh, we're pretty bad at that. But Charlie hasn't flown all the way to LA from the lab's home at Virginia Tech to play soccer. He's here to bust a move, to show off his dance steps. The Korean pop song Gangnam Style had only weeks prior become a global sensation. And just for this occasion, Charlie's been taught to do its signature dance. There's only one problem. The night before, instead of busting a move, Charlie busted a motor. There are already tiny audience members clamoring. He didn't do it yesterday, did he? He died. He started. Will he dance today? They all want to know. Uh, yeah, he's going to work at 4 o'clock, definitely. Since Hong founded the lab in 2004, Romella, the Robotics and Mechanisms Laboratory at Virginia Tech, has moved increasingly toward humanoid robots. That's no accident, says Hong. If a robot needs to live with us in an environment designed for humans, then I claim that the robot needs to have the size and shape of a human. The reason being, when you open a door, the door handle is at a certain height because that's ergonomics. It's designed for humans. Your step size, it has a certain step height. That's because for humans to walk on the steps. So if the robot is not a humanoid form, it won't be able to navigate the environment designed for humans. Not all of the team's projects are humanoids, but two of their biggest are. One is called Sapphire, for shipboard autonomous firefighting robot. And that one's being designed now on a Navy grant. The other is Thor, for tactical hazardous operations robot. That bot will be entered into the DARPA Robotics Challenge, what Hong calls the... Biggest, boldest, most expensive, craziest, most challenging, yet most important, in my opinion, robotics project of the history of humankind. Exactly the kind of burden these humanoid shoulders can bear. At least that's what Hong's betting on. Watch out, you don't want to be too close to the robot. It might kick you. Oh, yeah. You don't want to get kicked by a robot. Yeah, he's a soccer champion, I remember. It's almost go time, and Charlie's doing his first and only practice run. He'll be operated by remote control, but still, there are myriad things that could go wrong. <laughs> His feet set wide, he starts with the side-to-side rocking, then some galloping, but with feet firmly planted, culminating in the lassoing motions of the song's music video. It's a hit! It's gotta be said, the robot's got rhythm. Now let's just hope he's not got stage fright, too. 
the novelty of robots will wear off in coming decades, and some of their entertainment value with it. They might be as familiar as the postman. 2030, uh, for example, you buy something online, and probably it's not going to be a brown truck delivering your boxes, but probably it's going to be uh, unmanned aerial vehicles. That's going to drop this package in front of your door. Still, robots will be far too expensive for ordinary domestic use, Hong says. Are we going to have humanoid robots walking around in our home? Probably not. Robots, you'll see these expensive robots used where, in an area where money doesn't matter. What does it mean? Medical robotics, military robotics, when people's lives are involved, it's priceless. So cost doesn't matter. And this part is maybe overlooked in our computer-mad culture. But Hong says it's really the nuts and bolts of robots that will hold them back. If you look at more of the technology that involves physical systems like cars or anything that needs to move machinery, it doesn't grow as fast as information technology. We've been talking about flying cars since when? Do we have flying cars today? No, we don't. So by the 2030, I believe that we'll have the electronics and the software up to par, hopefully, but still what's going to be lagging is more of the physical systems. Hong's group is working on some such mechanisms, taking inspiration from the way humans walk. We're coming up with a pretty big departure from the traditional humanoid architecture. We developed these new type of actuators. They extend and contract like a human muscle, and they have built-in titanium springs for impedance control and try to mimic the human walking. Now, this is a high-risk, high-payoff project. It's ridiculously difficult. But if we can succeed, it's going to be a revolutionary change in how we can build walking robots. It's Charlie's moment in the sun. Dennis Hong walks out and introduces him, and Charlie steps forward right on cue. Hello, everyone. My name is Charlie, the first autonomous full-sized humanoid robot from the United States made by Dr. Dennis Hong at Virginia Tech. Welcome to the 39th Los Angeles Korean Festival. I hope you are having a great time. Thanks, Charlie. In Korean, Hong says how Charlie is a soccer champ, but will today be trying something new. Then Charlie's feet spread wide. Cue the music. Cell phone cameras already in the air. Charlie executes every move perfectly, the audience bobbing along in time. The video is plastered on YouTube. You could even call it a vision of the future. But the reality will be much more interesting if Dennis Hong has anything to do with it. I'm Lisa Raffensperger. Lisa's story comes to us from the IEEE Spectrum magazine, National Science Foundation special, Life in 2030. In many parts of the U.S., winter has worn out its welcome. And as it finally slips away on his Wisconsin farm, writer Rod Clark made a remarkable and fleeting discovery. Have I ever told you about the 10-minute brook? I myself have seen it only once in its full glory, sparkling and cold as it carved its way through snow and reluctant ice. My dog Morley discovered it, abandoning our path through the woods in sudden pursuit of the unknown. I called him several times, listening for the jingle of his tags in the crisp air. At first, there was only the cawing of some 
refrigerated crow, and then I heard it. Nothing sings like a brook. In that crystal braid of voices, saying, Listen to me, I am water, clear and crystal, trickling down over moss and stone. So I was thrilled, but also astonished. To the best of my knowledge, there was no brook on my land. But then I found Morley lapping at an icy rivulet that had magically appeared on the hillside, and the mystery was solved. Heavy snows in the upper field had melted, and finally the weight of the water had pierced the dam of snow at the edge of the rose and poured into the woods below, creating a tiny brook where none had been before. And standing there, I listened carefully because I knew that in a few minutes the upper field would be drained and the song of the brook would be brief. And it was important to listen to this music pouring out of winter into April because the brook was singing of warmer days to come and all the songs that would follow. Like the one I was hearing just then above the rush of water as a young cardinal perched high in the pines, began to sing his ruby song of love for any lady cardinal perching in the woods and all the world to hear. Rod Clark lives and writes in Cambridge, Wisconsin. He's the editor and publisher of Rosebud Magazine. On the next Living on Earth, they call it the greenest building in the country. This is a building that functions like an organism. Let's just say it has ears, it has eyes, it has a sophisticated nervous system, and it has a brain. It functions very much like the Douglas fir forest functioned when it was here 150 years ago. Earth Day founder Dennis Hayes and his new Bullet Center in Seattle. That's next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week beside trickling water. On the east coast of the Big Island of Hawaii, the dramatic Akaka Falls plunge more than 400 feet down into a gorge. But follow a narrow path through the jungle and you'll find a much smaller cascade feeding a stream beneath a wooden bridge sending up a mist of fine droplets. Toby Mountain recorded this soothing scene for his CD, A Week in Hawaii. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Alicia Zhuang, Kainat Khan, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learstein composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. 
Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield, working to produce healthy food for a healthy planet. Stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and the Town Creek Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.